Blog Talk Radio.
That's for Crystal and the kids and all the kids. I want to invite you to join in to PNN, the Progressive News Network. It's live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Western Time. The voices of activists, scientists, and artists, produced by Rick Spizak, co-hosted by senior producer Brooke Hines, and also featuring Janine Maloff, Justice Correspondent. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Maggie Herchala, uh, lifelong Floridian, lifelong conservationist, uh, a person who has done her level best to continue to make Florida a livable place, uh, not just for the little creatures, but for the bigger bipeds and uh, tripeds around. Um, Maggie, welcome. Uh, I've, I've got some questions, but more, most of all, I want you to tell your story. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, as, as we've talked in the past, uh, you're a lifelong flirting. Your love affair with Florida's wild lands started very early, didn't it? It did. I just uh, did an interview with some folks from Orvis, and it turned out of all the people they worked with on an Everglades documentary, they didn't have anyone who was old enough to have actually been in the Everglades in the 1940s. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard some stories myself about that first uh, the bridging of the glades with the Tamiami Trail. And I'm not that old. No. It's the 1920s. Yeah. <laughs> but it was when it was a dirt road down to where the park headquarters are now. Yeah. And uh, full of mosquitoes and we got stuck in the mud and had to get out in the night and uh, push off. And uh, it was an interesting adventure for a seven-year-old. Yeah, yeah. I had something similar. When my family first moved down in 67, we had gone out, we, we heard there was some campground west of Homestead, and we ended up driving into where the road ended, and there were tall grasses way over the head, and, and trying to turn around on a single lane road, we got stuck and had to climb out amidst a, a soup of mosquitoes. I, I, yeah. I know that experience. Um, Maggie, you're a, you're a person who not only has cared about Florida's wildlands, but you actually took part in civic life for some time. You were a county commissioner. I was um, county commissioner for 20 years. 20 years. Um, that's, that's a special kind of dedication. Um, I know many people, regardless of how much they care, wouldn't sit through a meeting to save their life. And you must have sat through <laughs> tens of thousands of those things. <laughs> uh, that's actually one of my... Uh, soapbox things, Rick, because I think that we all need to be free to criticize our government, but if we get to the point that nobody will represent us anymore, because everybody who tries to gets destroyed by the other side, that's a way to lose democracy. And I cannot overemphasize that running for local office <coughs> is the bravest, best thing you can do without getting shot at. Well, <laughs> yeah, um, that's such a tremendously important point, especially today, because so many people you talk to, intelligent, good-hearted people who care a lot about things, often will be heard to say, oh, I wouldn't run for office to save my life. I just There's just no way I would do that, and, and you're right. You know, people who think civic engagement is voting once every couple of months is, is not, that's not it. Uh, 
going down, participating, being part of the government, because it is we the people. And if it's not we the people, then it's we the corporations, and we all lose. That's true. And I tell people that, you know, first of all, you ought to run. And if you can't run, then you need to go help somebody run. And that doesn't mean just voting for them. It doesn't mean just giving them money, whether it's $10 or $100 or whatever you can give. It means organizing your friends, helping them out in the campaign, getting other people to do that. Uh, the special interests can buy that kind of support. The good guys can't. So if you want decent government, you have to make it happen. Oh, oh, absolutely. And if we needed that in in clear focus, boy, that's in front of us every day these days, uh, where people are buying <laughs> their way into public office, or you know, we've got competing billionaires running for office. Um, that's a far cry from the civic lessons I had <laughs> as a kid, and obviously yourself as well. Um, now, to, to catch people up. You uh, not only were engaged as a county commissioner for 20 years plus, uh, you have stayed active. You continue to, to participate in environmental meetings, in coalition meetings, and uh, you, you offered your colleagues, your former colleagues, and probably some that were newer, uh, your opinion on a particular development project, and that's where just... Uh, all hell broke loose, at least I'm sure, much more hell than you'd prefer to have had. Talk a little bit about how this, this slap suit started, would you? Uh, probably it started back in 2008 when, um, had, just as the recession started, George Lindman Jr. bought a rock pit uh, out in Martin County, and or bought a piece of land he was going to build a rock pit on. And I pointed out that some of the sales pitches that his folks were making just didn't make sense. There was no way that digging some rock pits on 2,000 acres was going to save the Everglades or provide water for the Loxahatchee or save the St. Lucie Inlet. And at that point, uh, somebody involved in environmental issues said, you know, uh, Mr. Lindemann's given some money to us and he wants to save the Everglades. Could you sit down and have lunch with him? So I had lunch with him down in Miami, and he told me that he didn't want to do anything bad, and he would be sure that there was a complete uh, a review by the peer group from the Comprehensive Everglades Plan, uh, and if that didn't happen, he'd just donate the property. Uh, they evidently then decided that they had shut me up, and everything was fine, and they proceeded to go forward. Never did the study that was promised. Uh, and. Uh, things were really quiet after the county endorsed it, <coughs> uh, the water management district endorsed it because it was going to do all those wonderful things, save the Everglades, save the St. Lucie Inlet, and so on. And then, I guess it was September of 2012, there was a headline in the Palm Beach Post about how they really weren't going to save the world anymore, they were going to sell water to Palm Beach, to the city of Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, which was having a problem with drought. And I fired off an email to all of the commissioners uh, saying, wait a minute, here, here's a bunch of questions you need to be asking your staff about this. Because if they're selling water that's really coming from Lake Okeechobee, which we've already given away more water than we have, to West Palm Beach, they're not going to be sending water to the Loxahatchee in the dry season. They're not going to be saving the Everglades. They're not going to be doing anything for the St. Lucie. And Throughout that fall, I must have sent dozens of emails full of questions, 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 questions. Uh, you know, 
I, I want to stop you there just for a second, because I remember as a young student being told that the way American government works is that citizens participate, and that when citizens participate and share their voice, share their perspective, that's the way good policy. Now, it seems to me that you were doing exactly what citizenship requires, which is participating and sharing your perspective, not throwing your weight around, not throwing dollars at people, not coercing them, but offering opinions or even even better questions as what should be the framers of the bill of rights thought that the single most important item in the bill of rights which is freedom of religion freedom of the press freedom of assembly was freedom to petition your government for a redress of grievances that always sounds a little awkward but it means we get to tell our government anything we want they don't have to do what we say but we get to say it. And uh, our founding fathers, I found this out as I got more embroiled in this uh, and looked at some of the cases of previous precedents in the Supreme Court, which is <clears throat> the founding fathers thought that the petition clause, the right to talk back to government, that we were the only government in the world that had ever been formed on the principle that the people could tell government anything they wanted. And you look around the world at dictatorships and problems around the world and you think, you know, we can get up there and tell them what we think. They don't need to do it, but they need to listen to us. So the summation of this long, gory story of Lake Point is uh, uh, when they had been losing a million dollars a year on their rock pit because it was really bad to go into rock pit building when you were having a housing recession. Uh, uh, and they simply sued the water management district, the county, and me to blame them. Now, um, the county never made them stop hauling rock. The district never made them stop hauling rock. I actually recommended in my email, whatever you do, don't stop them mining. Just get this straightened out so they're meeting their commitments. Uh, but uh, we then spent years in depositions and expensive legal work. and. Uh, before the trial, the judge, uh, the circuit court judge said, well, I don't see why the trial should take very long. He said, you interfered with the contract. Intentional interference with the contract is tortious interference, and therefore the only question would be damages. So uh, we had some problems uh, with, that, with that legal interpretation. Let me stop you just for a second there, because to me it's so critical that, I mean, it's one thing to be an advocate. It's another thing to, uh, as we see too often, uh, try to arrange witnesses to collaborate on a particular uh, point of view. But all you did was ask questions. And, and when you think that simply the point of asking questions is litigious or litigious, litigious, it just, it's Well, I know I sent an email to all of the county commissioners on their public email when they finally had a hearing about this because nobody had been modernizing it or cracking it or anything. We'd rather not talk about that. Thank and you. in January of 2013, they asked the staff to bring them up to date. And the staff told them they were not going by their, uh, the conditions they'd been approved under at right. that. Uh, the staff criticism of the project was not something I knew about right. until I saw the staff report that time. But uh, I listed a number of things that I thought were problems with the project. 
The one that the Court of Appeals zeroed in on and said this was tortious interference was a statement that a study was promised to document the benefits. The SERP review was never forthcoming. Well, Lake Point told the jury she said there were no studies. Look at all these studies. My expert witness who had been on the SERP committee said there never was a SERP review and they've never proved the benefits. But the Court of Appeals as well as the lower court said because she made this statement that there weren't studies and because that statement is untrue and because she did it with improper method, she used emails to some of the commissioner's private addresses. She contacted commissioners that were friends of hers. She tried to influence commissioners who were ignorant about the subject. I particularly like that one. Are you supposed to before you talk to your government? Check their ignorance factor. And finally, I had irreverently signed one of my emails, Deep Rock Pit. And they said... Ah, sense of humor too. No, no, that's illegal evidently. Evidently, that was proof of malice. Now, in the existing precedent of the courts, if you lie, you lie knowingly, you lie for the sole purpose of hurting. It's not that you got mad at the opposition and said some unkind things while you were fighting for a cause. For the sole purpose of damaging them. That's tortious interference. But the courts have said the fact that what you say is wrong is defended by the First Amendment. And I will to this day say that I am willing to defend and get expert witnesses to defend absolutely every statement I make. But it's a little awkward being a poster child for the right to say what's wrong. But that's important. If you look at any local meeting, at any legislative issue, if the question is, in your three minutes, did you provide an expert case that proved that nobody else could prove you wrong, then everybody's a loser. And I think one of the most important things about the issue, I think the reason that I'm standing in the middle of the road like a possum in the headlights and headed for the state Supreme Court, is the precedent that says if your government disagrees with you and their side's expert disagrees with you, you're guilty. That's a precedent we cannot live with. Good God. One of the amicus filed at the level of the Court of Appeals said that if this verdict stands, environmental advocacy in Florida will not only be dampened, it will cease to exist. And I think the other thing that's most important, these kind of slap suits didn't start until the 1980s. And they were an answer to the raucous youth of the 60s and 70s and all those demonstrations. But this is not about young people versus the establishment. It's not a liberal or environmental cause. I'll put you in good company. But it is just as important to both sides in our big partisan divide that you should... People have been slapped in slap suits because they complained about the curriculum because of their religious beliefs. I don't agree with what they wanted to have taught, but I certainly agree with their right to talk about it. Absolutely. And so 
all kinds of people, everybody who's ever advocated or cared about government needs to have the right to say what they think. Even if they're wrong. Even if they're wrong. And to me, short of that, then we don't have any kind of democracy. We don't have that citizen's right to participate. And if that isn't that to me seems to be the linchpin of our entire scheme of government, um, that the citizen's right to dissent. Again, whether they're right or wrong, a right to dissent and a right to be heard in that. Time. And the Supreme Court has generally throughout history uh, 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 defended uh, the right to do that, and they have encouraged really boisterous disagreement because if you think about it, you can't make up your mind unless you know all sides. And one of the sides has to be wrong. Of course. Uh, that if you do not have the citizen's right, the individual citizen's right to say what they think, then you're not going to get citizen input anymore. You're only going to have input that are for people who are paid and know they will be defended by corporate lawyers. Right. Um, you know, since unfortunately we we are all aware that there is a lot of commercial science out there available for sale to issue any any commercially available opinion that is needed, and that's shame. But that is how it is. One of the things there, though, that's really interesting is that uh, it was not just you know <clears throat> big mouth Maggie talking about something. I had an expert witness that was a qualified expert witness on the questions that were asked. So basically, they were saying, if you have two expert witnesses and they disagree, one of them is lying. And that's not how it works. In no, so many no. issues, it is a difference of opinion. And the reason it's an issue is it's a difference of opinion. Now, last I heard, uh, your case was uh, uh, hopefully being brought before the Florida uh, Supreme Court. Has that happened yet? No. Uh, we have asked for review. Uh, we have the most impressive, to me, group of uh, amicuses who have joined us, um, uh, uh, environmental groups, religious groups, press groups, um, civic rights groups, uh, mm -hmm. civic uh, freedom of speech, etc. Uh, I think there are 20 of them now. Wow. I'm, I am just so impressed by those people. Uh, the Riverkeepers Organization of Florida has joined in. Excellent. Uh, the ACLU, all sorts of folks. Uh, but. Uh, we're simply waiting now. Uh, the Florida Supreme Court has some vacancies now because some of them were moved up to federal judgeships. And so they're kind of overloaded. Right. Normally, I think we probably would have had something happen faster, but we're just waiting for uh, to see if the court will review the case. And any punitive uh, judgments are all pending that? Uh, no, as far as punitive judgments are concerned, they took away everything I owned. They took away, well, not everything. You get to keep $1,000 worth. Uh, they took away my car and had it impounded at the Sheriff's Department. They took away my two whitewater kayaks and impounded them at the Sheriff's Department. Uh, they threatened to take away my gold wedding band. Uh, they were as obnoxious as possible because the slap suit is about shutting people up and intimidating them and making everybody else be quiet so they won't go through it. Well, after they had held on to my 2004 Toyota of, uh, uh, at great expense for six months and my kayaks that uh, were 15 years old and bought secondhand, uh, they told my lawyers, well, if you'll threat, promise not to sue us for taking them, we'll give them back. They're not worth it. 
so I got my kayaks back, which is nice. I like my kayaks. And I got my car back, and uh, it still drives, and I like my car. I don't need a newer car. Uh, but uh, the whole point of it is to intimidate, embarrass, uh, 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 make people so afraid they just won't question it anymore. And if you want a, a, a really wonderful laugh at slap suits, Google John Oliver slap suit. Yeah, slap yeah. with two P's. <clears throat> uh, he was the subject of a slap suit for several years. While the trial and legal work was going on, he couldn't talk about it. They finally won. John Oliver has more fun <laughs> making fun of slap suits than anybody I know. And we need to both laugh and cry about them sure. because they will continue to be used against advocates as long as they work. Um, with a great deal of fanfare, uh, the uh, governor of Florida uh, <clears throat> reshuffled a, a few boards, appointed a scientist in a toxic uh, toxic waters uh, commission, and uh, they're they're coming out with their first few results. Uh, there was some question uh, about the initial report uh, that they focused far more on septic systems than they did on agricultural. Uh, are you following that particular? I've been following that, and I I would not go so far as to say that. I think the legislature has been weak would be a polite word in terms of uh, purchase its, its willingness to do the kind of regulation they need to do on agricultural runoff. Uh, I heard uh, we had a, a talk by a member of the Blue uh, Green Algae Task Force appointed by DeSantis. And he said, it depends on where you are. If you're talking about Lake Okeechobee and you don't regulate agriculture, you can forget it. <clears throat> because that's where most of it's coming from. That's where 80 or 90 percent of it's coming from. Uh, so I'm impressed with the first steps. Uh, the legislature uh, has a bill that is very much a first step that they're in the process of trying to take apart and water down, but some good things are happening. And yeah. one of the good things that's happening is that in a combination between Congressman Mast and Governor DeSantis, the Corps of Engineers is looking more carefully at how it regulates Lake Okeechobee. Now, there was a, a wonderful term called best practices, which uh, was uh, proposed or suggested as a, a, what we might call a really contemporary solution to the problem of overregulation. Because farmers, uh, agri the ag well, no, I won't say farmers, because farmers are another thing. The agricultural interests suggested that best practices was a good solution, a better solution than regulation, which we all know is onerous and to no good end. Um, have, have you seen or heard Absolutely. of best practices yes. really best, best solving the problem? Yeah. Best management practices are a really good thing. They're something the Department of Agriculture has worked on for years because they tend to be, in a lot of cases, a win-win situation. Sure. Uh, uh, and we know how to make best management practices work. The state of Florida got sued for sending dirty water south from Lake Okeechobee into a federal wildlife refuge in Everglades National Park. Uh, the state of Florida lost the lawsuit. They had to clean up the water. They are spending a billion dollars of our money to clean that up by building stormwater treatment areas, but at the same time, uh, they put in effect throughout 
what we call the EAA, the Everglades Agricultural Area south of the lake. Uh, everybody there can choose which best management practice they want, but they're required to monitor their water, and if their water doesn't come out as clean as it's supposed to from the best management practice they chose and said they were implementing, then they have to do something to make it so. If you enforce best management practices, uh, and in addition, all of the farmers in the EAA have to pay $25 an acre towards those STAs. That's a small part. We're paying the bigger part of cleaning up that Very water. generous. Uh, but they're paying something, and they are required to actually do something that's monitored, and they show make a difference. What they did is say, you know, BMPs, they work so well, that's what we're going to ask for in the watershed above Lake and around Lake Okeechobee uh, only, uh, and we're going to spend a lot of money helping farmers devise a plan. It'll be voluntary. They can join. We'll give them money to do parts of it and to develop the plan, but we won't make them monitor it, and we won't make them actually implement their plan and we won't check the water quality coming off the farm. So that's what the legislature is wrestling with right now, because if we don't do that, then Lake Okeechobee toxic blooms are going to get worse and worse. And I can't begin to tell you, without sounding like Chicken Little, just how dangerous that toxic algae is. Uh, there are 23 different cyanobacteria all of them produce a number of toxins. Those toxins cause things from <clears throat> liver cancer to diabetes to ALS, Alzheimer's, and <clears throat> other kinds of dementia. Uh, that's not, okay, I wonder if I could get sued for saying that. Uh, that's not the opinion of uh, Chicken Little. There's research from all over the world because we are seeing these toxic algae blooms for actually three reasons. One, it's warmer. They compete much better than other kinds of natural vegetation, natural algae that we may not like, duckweed and stuff like that, but hey, they don't compete as well when it gets really warm. It's getting warmer and warmer. And secondly, we are going into corporate agriculture, and there is more intense agriculture with more nutrient runoff. The third one you don't hear as much about is reservoirs because a natural system and a natural lake have natural marshes in them and competitive vegetation and uh, a whole scenario that better fights algae blooms. When you hold Lake Okeechobee too hot, when you hold it over 16 feet for a little while, it kills all the submerged vegetation. Those tall things that grow underwater and go up eight feet just high enough to get some sunlight, when you kill the submerged vegetation, that area releases all the nutrients in the bottom sediment because roots die, the stuff rots and dies, and the only thing that grows there is more toxic blue-green algae. So watching our lake levels, which uh, there's a royal out going on right now, uh, the sugar company sued, uh, U.S. Sugar sued the Corps of Engineers last year saying, <clears throat> you can't manage the lake to protect the estuaries and protect public health. The only way you can manage the lake is to give us all the water we've been promised. Uh, luckily, that was thrown out in court. But at this point, the court is undergoing a review of a new lake schedule. And uh, the 
forces that uh, are opposing any change that would affect water users uh, have been coming out very strongly to say, you know, we're sorry if you have a health problem, we don't really believe in your health problem, but we're sorry about it. Legally, the Corps must respect our water right. And in Florida, you don't own water. The people of the state own the water. This is a critical public health issue that we need to understand and admit happens. And you had public officials in our last bad summer telling people around Lake Okeechobee that it wasn't toxic when it was in the lake. It was only toxic when it reached the septic tanks of the coastal elite. That is hogwash. That is not even bad science. Uh, it's criminal negligence as far as I'm concerned. It's the same sort of thing that happened in Flint, Michigan. And we need to recognize the problem, not panic, and deal with it. And when you've got something like this where, you know, with the BMAA toxin, the, two years ago, the health department representative in Tallahassee that I called and talked to said, would you let your children eat the fish from Lake Okeechobee? He said, well, not until it was proved that there was a problem. Well, they've proved that there's BMAA in the fish in Lake Okeechobee. They've proved that when you feed BMAA to monkeys that it causes the misfolding of proteins that we see in Alzheimer's and other kinds of dementia. Uh, in the last two years, there's been a lot more research on that. And it's so hard for politicians to face up to that because it's so much seems like an insoluble problem. It's not that they're all cowards. If you had to solve that problem, you'd be a little daunted too. Sure. Sure. But unfortunately, it sounds like they're, they're being insulated from those uncomfortable facts more and more by the minute. I think the difference you see there is that, uh, you know, the legislators from uh, other areas aren't seeing this. The places where people are seeing it, their legislators are no longer insulated. Yeah. Well, thank you so very much for joining us. You're welcome. I, Always I, a pleasure. So that was Maggie Herchala. Uh, conservationist and uh, freedom of speech advocate, a uh, woman faced with a slap suit for basically asking questions of her government. Uh, it's a tough road to hoe. Okay, next up, I want to bring you this uh, one of our sponsors, one of our colleagues, the Daughters of Isis. Daughters of Isis is the ancestor of aromacology, indigenous scents representing the fragrant memories of our ancestors to provide us the tools of the inner quest, the authentic moment, and to heal the Earth Mother. Daughtersofisis.com Wholesale available also. Mention PNN and enjoy a free sample from our apothecary. For your aromatherapy needs, that's Daughtersofisis.com Okay, next up I want to play a couple brief comments from one of the anti-geo group people. Uh, first, uh, we're going to hear it in Spanish. Mi nombre es Carlos Naranjo. Eh, yo hago parte de lo que llamamos el Geo 9, un grupo de activistas que hicieron una acción directa en desobediencia civil eh, en el centro de esta corporación Geo Group. Ellos son parte integral de la, eh, el sistema de encarcelación masiva. Ellos son parte integral de la máquina de deportación. Ellos hacen parte integral de algo que hace sufrir a muchas personas. Eh, 
entonces por esa razón estuvimos envueltos en esta acción eh, a resultado de eso hay unos cargos que ahorita nos están imponiendo eh, y bueno lo hicimos porque queremos la justicia la queremos tanto que queremos arriesgar eh, todo por esto eh, sabemos que mientras más personas estén envueltas en esto mejor eh, sabemos que tenemos la historia detrás de nosotros y que las historias de justicia se han ganado al empujar un poquitico a la sociedad a que se comporte mejor. Entonces, como inmigrante, eh, como parte de una persona que quiere expresar solidaridad, eh, hicimos parte de esta acción y de nuevo eh, hay ciertas consecuencias, pero bueno, creemos en la justicia y creemos somos inocentes y creemos que esto se va a resolver pronto. Creemos también que la solidaridad es algo muy importante y muy bonito y por eso este mensaje es también para que todos lo podamos expresar y apoyemos en estas cosas. Ahorita estamos en camino para la corte, eh, no sabemos qué pasa y tal vez nos arrestan allá, pero lo que sí estamos completamente seguros es que esto hace parte de esa tradición de resistencia que ha logrado tantos derechos y tantas cosas buenas en la sociedad. Y entonces espero que este mensaje les llegue, les toque y que sí, que todos nos podamos envolver y que apoyemos todas estas causas porque así es como vamos a cambiar la sociedad para que sea mejor. And here is Carlos, the English version. Hey, my name is Carlos Naranjo. I'm from Colombia. I'm a migrant. Uh, I was part of this group, uh, the GEO9. Uh, we engage in something that is righteous, uh, civil disobedience, direct action, uh, against something that is very horrific, uh, GeoCorp, uh, one of the largest corporations for for-profit prisons, a key cause of the military prison industrial complex, a key cause of the deportation machine, you know, a key cause of everything that is so wrong with our society. And because we love justice so much, we engage in this action. Because of it, now they want to retaliate with some charges. And we really just want to say that uh, everything was done because we love justice. Uh, some of the conditions that they cause to migrants and refugees and many others are so much worse. But we are here because we want to call to attention what's going on. We believe that power matters. We believe that we're able to achieve so much if we come together and fight back. Resistance is always important, and the more of us, the better. The solution for this is solidarity, and so we're asking for solidarity. And we're in this cause to really end this mistreatment. So anyways, we're on the way to the courthouse. Uh, maybe we get arrested, I don't know. But we just want to call to attention to this issue, and hopefully you can be part of it by having some support. That was Carlos, one of the anti-geo group protesters. Okay, and now I'm going to bring you Janine Moloff, our justice correspondent and associate producer. Janine, take it away. Hello, Janine. Hi, Rick. How you doing, dear? I'm fine. How are you? Well, I am uh, <laughs> about to commit to a... Uh, a new technological innovation. I'm recording the show outside the show, and we will be reintegrating it just like good progressives should. <laughs> uh, works for me, What whatever you need to do. But so, the important thing is 
we get to have another good dose of Janine's <laughs> justice. Janine, give it to us. Thank you, Rick. Well, this week I'm talking about how basically the Department of Justice, or DOJ, has been weaponized as a presidential tool for revenge. I'm going to start with a quote by Randall Elias, a former U.S. attorney in D.C., as he summed up the issue of criminally using the DOJ as an instrument to exact presidential revenge. To quote him, quote, if Trump could get away with locking up his political opponents, that's exactly what he'd do. And he's getting closer and closer to getting away with it. Certainly at this point, Bill Barr is not getting in his way. Eliasson also added that, quote, it's been clear since Trump was elected that he doesn't care about the norms of keeping politics out of criminal prosecution. Some in his administration did. Now with Barr in charge, anything goes, end quote. And that was from Vanity Fair. We've seen this pattern of presidential interference with DOJ actions emerge through the amended sentencing recommendations of Roger Stone, which threw out the original prosecutor's recommendation and replaced it with a slap on the hand a few hours after Trump, Trump tweeted his objections to the original prosecution recommendation. In addition, Trump retaliated against Lieutenant Vindman for obeying a congressional subpoena ordering his testimony during the impeachment trial by dismissing him, in other words, firing him and his twin brother. Vindman was essentially fired for obeying the law. Lieutenant Vindman is a Purple Heart recipient who has served his country with honor. Now Trump, the draft dodger, uh, Cadet Bone Spurs, is tweeting his wishes to have the DOD, Department of Defense that is, punish Vindman further, hinting at court-martial proceedings. Not only are these actions unethical, they're illegal. They're illegal actions amounting to witness tampering, a federal felony that normally brings a 20-year prison sentence. But because of the Office of Legal Counsel opinion written in 2000, sitting presidents cannot be indicted. That being said, those who do Trump's otherwise illegal bidding are not immune to prosecution, though Trump claims otherwise using the excuse of executive privilege, but that's another story. In short, the Department of Justice, or DOJ, cannot be legally weaponized as an instrument of revenge against Trump's stated enemies, real or imagined. Unfortunately, we're living in an era that views such democratic and legal norms with contempt, such as the administration of Donald Trump. It's no small coincidence that he chose Bill Barr to succeed Jeff Sessions as his attorney general. Though Bill Barr was touted early on as one of the, quote, adults in the room with a legitimate reputation, that reputation was built on a foundation of blatant lies and misrepresentations. We now know that former attorney general Jeff Sessions was asked to obstruct the Mueller investigation, and Sessions recused himself rather than commit a felony as a favor for Trump. Bill Barr seemingly appeared as the Cinderella candidate for Department of Justice, minus the nasty reputation that Sessions enjoyed as a resident racist in the United States Senate. All of this was smoke and mirrors. Barr has a long history aiding, abetting, and yes, perhaps engineering massive cover-ups of presidential crimes dating back to the Reagan administration. While some GOP acolytes would dismiss this as rumor, hearsay or chalk it up to ancient history, an examination of Barr's true record is warranted. We must go back and look at that ancient history and realize why it matters that Barr and others evaded accountability. Without such accountability, subsequent presidents, and yes, this means Trump and his handlers, will and have become far more blatant in terms of reducing the DOJ 
to just that, a weaponized instrument of revenge against, aimed against anyone named as an enemy of this president, Trump, and any future president. So Bill Barr, the enabler of DOJ, has a soiled past, or as same journalist William Sapphire described, Bill Barr was the cover-up general. Now, in Salon, Tom Hartman, a renowned journalist, uh, did a piece titled Bill Barr, Cover-Up Artist. And he spoke about how in 1992, Christmas week, George Bush Sr. was on his way out. And Bill Clinton was about to take the White House and be sworn in. Now, Bush Sr. was worried that he might end up in federal prison for his role in the Iran-Contra crimes as Reagan's vice president. But Bush's biggest concern wasn't having to leave the White House and retire, but again, that he might end up in federal prison. Now, independent counsel Lawrence Walsh Walsh, um, was getting close to the truth, and the truth uh, centered around a diary that that old man Bush kept in 1986. And Walsh, as you know, had been appointed the independent counsel in 86 to investigate Iran-Contra. Now, the question is, did the plot start in the spring of 1980? And that was the Reagan versus Carter election. Was this plot, was this a conspiracy to cost Carter the election? Did Bill Casey do this as campaign manager on his own? Or like Nixon in 68, did the presidential candidate or his basically VP candidate, which was basically a former CIA chief, did he participate? Now, there was a, an article written in the Christian Science Monitor in 2013 by Iran's president during the time of the hostage crisis, Balasan Bani Sadr. And to quote him, he said, quote, Ayatollah Khomeini and Ronald Reagan had organized a clandestine negotiation, later known as the October Surprise, which prevented the attempts by myself and then U.S. President Jimmy Carter to free the hostages before the 1980 U.S. presidential election took place. The fact that they were not released tipped the results of the election in favor of Reagan. Sounds really familiar to what's going on now. So, was the Iran-Contra conspiracy limited, as both Bush Sr., his Veep, and Reagan basically said, or into the later years in the Reagan presidency, or was this earlier an earlier plot? Walsh was zeroing in on documents that Reagan had um, that were in possession of Reagan's former defense secretary, Kasper Weinberger, and these records basically contained evidence that showed that um, there was there was a definitely a deal, and Bush's diary could corroborate it. And Weinberger was preparing to testify that Bush Sr. knew all about this, and basically, you know, he was he was. Uh, and basically, uh, the information he'd obtained into the investigation to Weinberger um, demanded that Bush turn over his diary. Bush panicked. He had only three more weeks of safety in office, and that was as president because of the OLC opinion saying that in, uh, sitting presidents can't be indicted. So Bush called in his preferred U.S. attorney. Guess who? Bill Barr. Now... New York Times writer at the time, William Sapphire, is one nicknamed Bill Barr as the cover-up general. And he basically, you know, said that, you know, this is just another scandal. Bush was selling weapons of mass destruction to Saddam. 
and Barr was already trying to cover up for Bush and his other friends. And on October 1992, Sapphire wrote um, that Barr, Barr was unwilling to appoint an independent counsel. So I think at this time, Barr was like an assistant uh, attorney general. And the quote was, quote, why does the cover-up general resist independent investigations of Sapphire? Because he knows where it may lead to Dick Thornburg, James Baker, Clayton Yutter, Brent Snowcroft, uh, Brent Scowcroft, and himself. He vainly hopes to be able to head it off or at least be able to use threat of firing to negotiate a deal. So just two months later, Bush was asking Barr for advice on how to avoid a very serious charge in the Iran-Contra uh, situation. And Bush Sr. apparently, according to this article, wanted to know, could they shut down Walsh's investigation before Walsh's team got their hands on his diary? In April of 2001, uh, the University of Virginia's Miller Center uh, was busy compiling oral presidential histories, and they interviewed Barr about his tenure as AG in the Bush White House, or assistant AG. And then they brought up the issue of the Weinberger pardon and his involvement. And as it turns out, Barr was in the middle of it. And this is a direct quote. Quote, there were some people arguing just for a pardon for Weinberger. And I said, no, in for a penny, in for a pound. I went over and told the president I thought he should not only pardon Kef for Weinberger, but while I was at it, he should pardon about five others, end quote. And that's exactly what happened. Now, the fact is this. Reagan and old man Bush were both face, potentially facing prison time because of their participation in Iran-Contra, and Walsh was closing in. So Bush Sr., you know, when he was president, pardoned Weinberger and five others, and this effectively nullified Walsh's ability to prosecute any of the players. Now, this is the second paragraph of the Times story by David Johnston laid it out. Quote, Mr. Weinberger was scheduled to stand trial on January 5th, on charges that he lied to Congress about his knowledge of the arms sales to Iran and efforts by other countries to help underwrite the Nicaraguan rebels, the case that he, he that was expected to focus on Mr. Weinberger's private notes that contained references to Mrs. Mr. Bush's endorsement of the secret shipments to Iran, end quote. Okay, so this basically set up the idea that when a Republican president faced some serious legal trouble, the go-to guy was Bill Barr. And this is something that, again, with the all the members of the Senate that, that had to basically interview Barr, they couldn't get to this at all. Um, and now we get ahead, a little ahead of ourselves now, and Lev Parnas, uh, Tom Harton wrote another piece, you know, titled Lev Parnas is Afraid of Bill Barr, He Should Be. And Tom Hartman was quoted as saying, basically, an attorney general willing to bend or even break the law can be a corrupt president's last line of defense, end quote. And it's true. Now, Lev Parnas uh, recently told Rachel Maddow that apparently he's more terrified of Bill Barr than he is of any of the foreign oligarchs or the mafia uh, soldiers they have, you know, on payroll. And because he said, basically, Barr can weaponize prisons to to punish him. And direct quote, am I scared, Parnas said? Yes, because I think I'm more scared of our own Justice Department than these criminals right now. So we have a whistleblower timeline in brief. And this was basically Trump reportedly was bribing and extorting, as we know, uh, Ukraine President Zelensky. 
The first report went to the intelligence community inspector, General Michael Atkinson. And General Atkinson thought it was enough evidence that of a serious crime. He deemed it, quote, an urgent concern. So at General Atkinson gave the report over to the director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire. Now, under the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act, McGuire was, or was supposed to then pass it over to the Congressional Intelligence Committee. But instead, McGuire handed it straight over to the DOJ's Office of Legal Counsel, the OLC. And yes, this is the same OLC that unilaterally decided sitting presidents can't be indicted. Okay? And that's where this report from the whistleblower died. And that is until Atkinson reached out and spoke to the House Intelligence Committee to let him know about Bill Barr's cover-up. And the whistleblower's complaint is very specific. He implicates Attorney General Bill Barr in the first lines of the complaint. All right? The whistleblower said, quote, in the course of my official duties, I have received information from multiple U.S. government officials that the President of the United States is using the power of his office to solicit I'm sorry, interference from a foreign country in the 2020 U.S. election. This interference includes, among other things, pressuring a foreign country to investigate one of the President's main domestic political rifles. The President's personal lawyer, Mr. Rudolph Giuliani, is a central figure in this effort, and Attorney General Barr appears to be involved as well. End quote. This is a repeat of history. You can look back as far as 1972 when Attorney General John Mitchell um, basically covered up for Nixon's crimes. He hired FBI agent Stephen King to assault and silence his own wife, Martha Mitchell. And this is something that people have forgotten about. Here the Attorney General hires this FBI agent to physically attack his own wife to keep her quiet. And at the time, Martha Mitchell was labeled as a hysterical woman that was basically kind of crazy, and they drugged her up. Now, King, who's 78 now, has been rewarded for his service to the GOP. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. So, you know, again, Barr is doing the same type of cover-up work, you know, that's really part of a pattern among G Republican attorney generals. And, you know, back in Nixon's day, Jeb Magruder, you know, let reporters know Nixon ordered his own attorney general, John Mitchell, to uh, create a cover-up of the water break-in. Magruder did go to prison for his action. Um, you know, John Mitchell's wife, Martha, did learn about it. She was in the process of telling uh, UPI reporter Helen Thomas the story and over the phone. And one of Mitchell's men just basically burst in and, um, you know, just said, get away. And Stephen King, who was then the man who attacked Martha Mitchell, um, has been assigned, you know, basically has been rewarded. Um, and, you know, once again, Stephen King's reward for beating and abusing Martha Mitchell, he is today, he's now, as of 2017, the U.S. ambassador to the Czech Republic, appointed by Donald Trump. Attorney General Mitchell did go to prison for his work for Nixon. Now, Barr's latest cover-up, okay? And this is, it makes the Watergate crimes look like Piker. Uh, according to this story, Barr lied to the American press and the public about the contents of the Mueller report. And that was in Politics USA. And he lied about 10 instances of criminal obstruction of justice by Trump and multiple efforts of collusion with foreign governments to become president. 
Um, according to Slate.com, in 2019, Barr's still hiding grand jury testimony that could possibly land Trump and his co-conspirators, you know, prison sentences. Um, his Barr's Justice Department did conduct investigations into Hillary Clinton, according to the L.A. Times, and the Clinton Foundation, and James Comey, the Comey investigator, according to Politico. And Barr had uh, a prosecutor dig into the whistleblower sources. Uh, the very whistleblower spoke to Robert Mueller, uh, according to a New York Times uh, story, and that was regarding the attempts to collude with foreign governments, including Russia, to steal the election. So Barr is not the adult in the room, but he is the key to Trump's palace. Um, and he's a very dangerous man, in my opinion. And now we have also um, basically another article by Chris Smith um, basically talking about how uh, DOJ has been weaponized uh, once again. Um, Nick Ackerman, who was a federal prosecutor um, regarding the investigation of Richard Nixon, said, quote, we didn't have this problem in Watergate. All right. During Watergate, Ackerman's bosses, which were basically Archibald Coxon and Leon Jaworski, um, they, as special prosecutors, they operated independently of DOJ. And, you know, Ackerman went on to say, we didn't have to go to justice for charging decisions, for sentencing decisions, end quote. Quote, even John, A.G. John Mitchell never reached into particular cases to try and stop them. He did things to try and obstruct them, but nothing like this, end quote. So the Trump DOJ under Bill Barr is outscandling, as they say, Watergate under, you know, Mitchell. So he's surpassing the corruption levels of the Nixon state, the Nixon uh, administration. Um, you know, basically the Roger Stone case, we look at that, federal prosecutors, as we now know, recommended that Trump Cody Roger Stone received up to nine years in prison for the following, lying, witness tampering, and obstructing a congressional investigation. But Barr had the DOJ throw out the initial recommendation and severely reduce the sentence just hours after Trump posted multiple tweets calling the prosecutor's recommendation a miscarriage of justice. As a result of the apparent presidential interference, four senior prosecutors just the other day resigned from the case and one quit the department. Paul Rosenzweig, a lifelong Republican and former senior counsel to Kenneth Starr during Whitewater, um, he uh, spoke about this too. And he said, quote, the people I've talked with inside DOJ are angry, depressed, confused, dismayed, disaffected, all of the above. Um, and Rosenzweig was also a deputy assistant secretary for Homeland Security in the Bush administration. Um, you know, he said, quote, three, four years ago, many of us predicted the president would try and weaponize the justice system by prosecuting his enemies and pardoning his friends. And that's exactly where we are right now. Um, and this is really incredibly dangerous now. The Vindman case, uh, you know, again, the retaliation against him. He's not only was fired along with his brother, but now Trump is tweeting that he wants some the military to take action against him, preferably in the form of a court martial. And the reason he's doing that is because the DOJ has no um, no reign over the military, so it has to come from DOD. And this is something that is really incredibly frightening. You know, this amounts to witness retaliation. And this is where we come into his crimes. Witness retaliation is a crime. And this is according to Ellie Honig who does a weekly column, is a CNN legal analyst, a former federal and state prosecutor. 
and basically, you know, he he said that witness retaliation, you know, is a crime. Uh, and when Trump goes after Vindman Brothers, because again, because Vindman uh, honored the subpoena and testified, that is witness re- retaliation, and it is illegal. Um, he also took uh, jo- Jonathan Turley to task. Um, Turley took assertion with this this claim, and uh, Koenig is saying Turley's wrong. Um, this idea of an unfettered, unaccountable presidential president that powers it, it, it defies law, and it has no common sense, and it's just nothing but excuse making, and it's propping up basically an abusive president and an equally abusive DOJ just to do whatever politically Trump wants done. And, you know, he said Trump uh, first truly argues that Trump's, quote, post-trial action is not obstruction or witness tampering, and those officials are not guaranteed to retain such positions indefinitely. But once again, that's not the point. He's saying Turley missed the mark. The actual crime isn't necessarily obstruction or witness tampering, but witness retaliation, and that is a crime. So now we have basically a formal statement, and here over 1,100 formal federal prosecutors call out the Trump administration and A.G. Barr for corrupting the DOJ and transforming it into an instrument for political revenge as opposed to impartial and equal justice. And this is referred to as a DOJ alumni statement. The signatories come from both parties, conservatives and progressives alike. Um, they accurately outline the crimes of Trump and A.G. Barr and describe the legitimate duties of the DOJ. And it's dated May 6, 2019, pre-impeachment trial. And they say they're federal, former federal prosecutors. And they come out and say the only reason Trump isn't indicted on multiple felony counts for obstruction of justice is because of the OLC policy against indicting a sitting president. And it's really that simple. They talk about how the Mueller report identifies multiple acts of obstruction to satisfy all the elements required by law. And they speak to Trump's efforts to fire Mueller and falsify evidence about it. Um, They speak to uh, Trump's efforts to limit and reduce the scope of Mueller's investigation to exclude anything Trump might have done, and the president's efforts to prevent witnesses from cooperating. The attempts to fire Mueller and create false evidence is also discussed by these pro- these prosecutors. Um, they basically saying that Trump made repeated efforts to have McGahn te- deny the story um, and to write a letter for our files falsely denying that Trump had directed Mueller's termination. And basically, if Trump had gotten his way, firing Mueller directly would have constituted obstruction in its most literal sense, end quote. Um, Trump tried to basically have them uh, doctor and create false government records to prevent, you know, legitimate truthful testimony. And he pressured A.G. Sessions to his legally mandated decision, uh, you know, he pressured Sessions uh, and Sessions then recused himself as he should have done. So this is an ongoing pattern of constant, you know, witness intimidation and tampering, um, tampering and intimidation, including dangling of pardons with Trump's public tweets and statements. There's no guesswork here. This is really, truly corruption beyond the pale. In conclusion, 
once again we see the specter of authoritarian rule threaten democracy much like any uh, much like another technically legal coup perpetrated many decades ago that also argued for a unitary executive i'll name that at the end of this report gop ideologues mar married to the, the theory of the unitary executive have pushed for what can only be called an elected dictator or monarch there is no other way to describe this perversion of true rule of law to a theory with so little credibility while there were some founding fathers that pushed this theory that they did not constitute the majority many of the founders were against this model of executive dictatorship and regarded this idea as very antithesis to liberties expressed in the bill of rights the ugly truth is that the unitary executive places total power over the executive branch into the hands of the president it essentially states l'etat c'est moi the potus is the executive branch adherents of this theory also wrongfully claim that the potus can't be found of guilty of illegal acts since the same potus is the executive branch the circular logic of this idea only served to prop up an illegitimate initial premise aka an apologist stance for an authority for authoritarian rule since the potus controls the military the formula for a dangerous coup would become a mere technicality our democracy and our judicial system have no enforcement mechanism other than the goodwill and respect of the people and the executive to obey the rule of law subsequently if a criminal was elevated to the office of potus what would keep such a criminal from abusing the absolute powers granted this under this unitary executive model trump is already pushing to strip citizens of the right to bear arms but only certain groups of citizens how has he been allowed to abuse the system to this degree not only the truth is more damning than trump's vile behavior to date namely that legions of gop attorneys are covering for his criminality and treason not only do they want a unitary executive monarch but they want a blanket get out of jail free card for any crimes that might be committed in the name of this same unitary executive the origin of this legal cover-up rests in the growing power of the illegitimate office of the legal counsel or olc the absolute power of this office is stolen is beyond belief the olc has since 2000 decided unilaterally that a sitting president cannot be indicted keep in mind the attorneys of the olc are allowed to labor in anonymity claiming they cannot possibly give unfettered advice without such a glaring omission of transparency and accountability no other profession except the legal and political fields make such a specious claim as long as these attorneys are allowed to craft opinions such as the now infamous torture memos while enjoying anonymity political accountability and eventually democracy itself will remain collateral damage in the eyes of these corrupt enablers by the way the dictatorship i mentioned earlier which enshrined the very idea of the unitary executive came to fruition through the enabling laws of 1933 that guaranteed absolute power to the unitary executive the unitary executive or chancellor at that time was adolf hitler and that's my report thank you so very much as always concise to the point and you raise important issues for thoughtful discussion thanks again my pleasure Janine, ha have a wonderful evening bye-bye Merely exposing the president's scheme has not stopped him from continuing this destructive pattern of behavior that has brought us to this somber moment. He is who he is. That will not change. And nor will the danger associated with him. Every piece of evidence supports that terrible conclusion that the president of the United States will abuse his power again that he will continue to solicit foreign interference to help corruptly secure his reelection. 
He has shown neither remorse nor acknowledgement of wrongdoing. If you can believe that July 25th was a perfect call, that asking for investigations of your political opponents and using the power of your office to make it so is perfectly fine, then there is nothing that would stop you from doing it again. President Trump has abused the power of his office and must be removed from that office. Mr. Connell, I yield back. And that was Adam Schiff. The majority Schiff. leader is recognized. Mr. Chief Justice, I suggest that a 15-minute uh, recess. Without objection, so ordered. All right, so another two and a half, almost two and a half hours uh, that we just heard from the House manager is very passionate statement once again from the lead House manager, Adam Schiff, earlier passionate statements from Akeem Jeffries and Jason Crow. Uh, they spoke for two and a half hours. They have another, what, six, uh, five and a half hours left today. So this is going to continue. Uh, and Jake, this is uh, wrapping up, except for the 16 hours of debate that will follow the White House lawyers, three days, potentially three days of presentations starting tomorrow, Saturday. This, this will be effectively the last chance that these Democrats uh, the House managers have to convince four Republican senators to join them in supporting witnesses and documents in this trial. And what we largely heard... Fly specs. Fly specs. I've been spending my life among fly specs while miracles have been leaning on lampposts at 18th and Fairfax. Mothers all would say, I didn't raise my boy to be a 
I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. I brought him up to be my pride and joy. Zivon, the final word. Warren Zivon. Thanks so much. We'll see you Sunday. Take care. Solidarność, my friends.